Welcome to the Writer's Hour, where we have creative conversations with up-and-coming authors on their latest books. This is the place to be if you wish to get a preview of new books that are available for the voracious bibliophile, as well as the story behind the story for the voyeur who wishes a peek behind the creative curtain. Here's your host, Janine Bolin. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Hour, Creative Conversations with Janine Bolin. And today's guest is Chris Rydell, who has spent the past 40 years in the healthcare industry and more recently as one of the leading healthcare fraud fighters. He founded and served as the CEO of five healthcare companies, Hunter Heart, Hunter Laboratories, Miris Laboratories, Microscan, and Micromedia Systems. In May of 1992, Miris was ranked as Business Week's 40th best small company in America. Chris has also served as the Managing Director for Providence Capital, a boutique kind of New York investment bank, and he is also the Chairman of Chai Laboratory Systems, the preeminent hospital and commercial laboratory consulting firm in the U.S., and as a member of the Board of Directors of Boston Heart Lab. Currently, he's a member of the Business Executives for National Security. Now, that's a very interesting bio, right? You know, this is a guy who kind of knows his way around. But let me tell you, the next paragraph of his introduction is where Mr. Rydell gets super cool in my book. For the past decade, Chris has concentrated his effort on fraud fighting against medical laboratories that are defrauding America taxpayers and the medical industry. This is the subject of his latest book, Blood Money. One of his proudest accomplishments came when he received the Taxpayers Against Fraud Whistleblower of the Year Award in 2011. Why? Well, it was because he assisted in the recovery of $286 million from Quest and LabCorp, which he undertook on the behalf of the California taxpayers. Another accomplishment, because, you know, he needed to add yet another accomplishment to this man's amazing career, he had developed and received FDA new drug approval for a more precise way to identify bacteria-causing disease in which antibiotics and dosage levels would be most effective in treatment. This is a product that has saved many lives around the world. He is a longtime resident of Silicon Valley. Chris makes his home there with his wife, Marsha, and four sons for whom he served as soccer and basketball coach for years. He enjoys international travel. So yeah, you want this guy to come speak at your gig. I, for, I definitely want you to do that. And he's also an avid Bay Area sports fan. Chris, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jane. Let me make one correction now. My wife pronounces her name Marcia. Marcia, thank you. Hey, I love it when people correct me on names because that needs to happen. Thank you. Okay, so starting off with today, what I wanted to talk a little bit about was not only has Chris had an amazing career, but you also wrote this book called Blood Money, which, by the way, you gave me a PDF file. I read through it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is a real-life adventure mystery story. And you also have a how-to section in it on how to be your own whistleblower in your um, in your own fields. So talk to us a little bit about Number one, why? Why write this book when you're naming names on this thing? Jane, I wanted to, there were three reasons I wanted to write this book. First, um, I wanted to write a true thriller of what I went through 
so that people would understand that whistleblowers, it's a hard, hard road. And uh, it, generally they are destroyed uh, by the companies they're suing and the companies find out who they are. Most of them end up unemployed, bankrupt and divorced. And we certainly were attacked, or I certainly was attacked when Quest and LabCorp found out that I was behind these lawsuits. And I thought it would just make for a good thriller. Secondly, I wanted to write uh, some rules for whistleblowers. If anybody's contemplating doing this, I lay out, uh, A, the chances of success are less than those of being hit by lightning. Your life will never be the same, and you are going to be attacked. But there are things you can do to prepare yourself. Almost all of the whistleblowers, in fact, every significant whistleblower I've met didn't do it for the money. They found a wrong, they found a fraud that was costing taxpayers a lot of money, and they just couldn't stand it. Uh, in my case, uh, what I found was a fraud in the medical laboratory industry where these companies were stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from the California Medicaid program. And as a new laboratory, we couldn't compete with the way they did these frauds. They were giving below cost pricing for small amount of business to doctors so they could pull through the higher Medicare, Medicaid, and insurance. But in California and other states, the Medicaid program was entitled to the lowest charge. And that's where the fraud occurred. They didn't pass it along to those states. And the fraud also occurred because by giving the low-cost pricing to induce the pull-through, it's a kickback. So my choice for my company was either knowingly violate state and federal law, which I was not going to do, um, lay off 150 great employees, close our business, and write off most of our life savings, or lastly, try to do something to stop uh, the fraudulent behavior and level the playing field for honest laboratories. And the only way to do that, it turned out, was to file a whistleblower lawsuit. And that is when your life truly got interesting. So first of all, you find a problem, you find this challenge where things are being sold at below cost. So that is basically not fighting fair to begin with. And I know people say that all's fair in love and war, but when it comes to a capitalistic society, we kind of have this rose-colored glasses of an ideal of, hey, at least don't sell us below cost because then how do we have healthy competition, which you were seeing going right down the tubes, that not happening. And the other thing that I found very uh, significant was just the hundreds of millions of dollars that this was involving for taxpayers. So as somebody who works hard for their money, you know, I want to make sure that my government or the systems are at least helping the people I think they're trying to help. So what are some of the steps that you took? What were some of the first steps of, okay, my company can't compete. Oh my gosh, I've stumbled upon this fraud. What were your next steps after that? Well, once I, once I, first thing I did was call my regulatory counsel to find out, you know, are these things legal? And the clear answer was no, they're not. So then I contacted my longtime personal attorney, Pompilieri, and said, what am I going to do to stop this? And after a couple of months, he called me in his office and said, never heard of the key camera whistleblower statute? And he explained it to me. 
And what that is, is it was uh, started during the Civil War under Lincoln because there was so much fraud against the Union Army. It was bolstered under Reagan and again with Obama under uh, the Care Act. And it allows a private individual to sue a company on behalf of the government for the fraud. And so we drafted a complaint and we filed it in the state of California. And then there we sit for a few months. And eventually the government contacts you and interviews you. And the whole thing is under seal. So the defendants don't know that there's a lawsuit filed and you can't talk about it to anybody. Um, government generally spends years investigating whether they think the fraud is worthwhile or not. In our case, it took four years before the government decided, yes, this is great. And then they, quote, intervene. They, they unseal it and they prosecute it. Um, and then it took about a year for settlement. But in many of the other cases I have, the government decided not to intervene. And we're actually delighted when they don't. And the reason is now we're going to have really good lawyers prosecuting this case at a pace that is understandable. And we know what's going on. Because the government in California, they worked with it very closely. And it was a wonderful experience. But in many other states and with the federal government, no clue what's going on. And that is one of the things is when it's uh, literally cloak and dagger. You know, you're, you found when I was reading through some of the stuff, I'm like, my God, this is almost like a spy novel because you're, there was so much that you didn't know. And then, as you said, once you were able to move it into the private sector and you moved it out, of, out from underneath the auspices of the government, then you could really get some action plans going. Then things became clear as far as next steps and that sort of thing. So with with all that, and I don't want to I don't want to spoil it. You know, I don't want to spoil the ending for people with this amazing book, Blood Money. But what changes do you feel need to happen in the medical lab space? I mean, in the 2020s, for fraud to be reduced, the taxpayer, you know, we don't want to we don't want to be ripped off. So what are some of the quality tests that rise to level of, say, Hunter was providing? I mean, what kind of perfect day do you have in your eyes for um, what the medical lab space needs to do? Um, I think it's quite simple. Medical labs and other healthcare companies need to know if they are going to steal money from taxpayers, they're going to go to jail. That has not been the case. Unfortunately, the Department of Justice, in all of my cases, nobody's gone to jail, nobody's lost their bonus, nobody got fired. The shareholders end up paying these fines at anywhere from five to 20 cents in the dollar. So fraud in healthcare is a great risk reward for fraudsters. And until, until DOJ changes their attitude about affordable civil settlements, it's not going to stop. And my last chapter in the book, I give nine simple suggestions for what DOJ can do that would change it from like using pistols to fighting fraud with tanks. <laughs> right. We would all like to have that because a lot of times people just don't know how profitable fraud is 
for large for some of the large corporations that are involved in it. And when you do have whistleblowers come through, they almost have to defend their life to a picture perfect level uh, before anybody will listen to them and and bring it home to roost. Of you want to know why healthcare is so expensive? Look at where this fraud is. It's in the healthcare industry. In your case, it's in the healthcare industry. We've seen it in other industries, but we'll focus on healthcare for right now. And one of those things is when you when you see just how much money is being made or is being transferred through hands based on different types of, uh, I say genres of books, but uh, disease classes, you know, that are being filtered and worked through. So for you personally speaking, you know, we talked about how fraud is now profitable and people can engage in it if you're in a big corporation and you're not worried about going to jail. So for you personally speaking, I mean, how fulfilling has this work been for, for you? On the one hand, it's been very fulfilling. Uh, I enjoy playing the role of a private eye. You have to dig up non-public information. I had to learn some new skills, and I really, really enjoyed that. On the other hand, with the settlements that the DOJ entered into, I want to tear my hair out. And there's nothing I can do about it. And that is incredibly infuriating. When you see injustice being done, innocent people being harmed without even their knowledge of it, really, and yet there's not a thing you can do. I have been in situations like that. It's just like sometimes you just have to walk away. But you had two attorneys who were more than willing to help you go to bat. And do you want to talk a little bit about them and what you were able to accomplish through their work and service? Neil McCarthy and Justin Berger are with the firm of Tachet, Petrie, and McCarthy. And they're whip smart. Uh, they are as upset about fraud as I am, and they will leave no stone unturned. And as I said, most whistleblower attorneys, if the government decides not to intervene, they just walk away, not Neil and Justin. That's when they really get excited because now they're free, their hands are untied. And we can prosecute the case ourselves. And that's where it's almost like you can see them start salivating of, okay, time for us to go after this group. And it was kind of fun to read about that in, in the book. Not fun for you, because as a as a mom, I have four kids and all that. I was thinking, wow, this is something that you really have to go toe-to-toe. And you were talking about uh, looking up non uh, public information, having to literally be your own uh, PI. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I found it kind of fascinating. Um, we had to have evidence, direct evidence, that companies were not passing on those charged to Medicaid programs. But how are you going to get that? So I happened to be early on at an industry conference, and I ran into two a sales rep and a sales manager from one of the companies. And so I, I'd known them, and I sauntered up to them in the uh, bar, and I started talking to them. By the way, these very cheap prices that you charge, uh, are they passed on to the Medicaid program? And they laughed. They said, no, of course they're not passed on to the Medicaid program. We don't even pay sales commissions on them. <laughs> Why, thank you very much. <laughs> That's one example. Another one which just stunned me is uh, this fellow uh, from Stanford University got up at that same conference and presented a success story for Stanford on that outpatient laboratory testing. 
in which he gave slide by slide by slide, describing the exact fraud, which he did not know we had sued Stanford. So that was exhibit one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was just serendipity. Yes, when you start looking for what you need and it starts presenting itself to you, like you said, serendipity. So we talked about the one win that you were able to get. So I know there have been a lot of disappointments as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the dis big disappointments you had when you were in Blood Money? Sure. Uh, one of them uh, is with a company called Boston Heart. Uh, and they were, uh, they had a, <laughs> they were money laundering. They were paying cash doctors for uh, ordering. And they never built a patient. And by never going to patients, they were committing insurance fraud. And there was no reason that doctors would really order these outrageously large panels with unnecessary tests because the patient was never going to see a bill. Um, and so the government spent uh, four years investigating this and then said, we don't like it. We're not going to intervene. And I'm going, you just prosecuted four companies I sued that did exactly the same thing without the money laundering. Well, we're not going to prosecute. So we immediately started taking depositions. And uh, after about four months, DOJ calls us and says, we have a settlement in place. We go, what? You did this behind our backs without even talking to us? And the settlement was literally 20 cents in the dollar. Wow. And, you know, it's crazy because the, the statue is so strong. It's treble damages on the amount of the theft plus $20,000 per $50 claim. You're humongous. So the closer you get to trial, the closer that board of directors will authorize any amount of money because if they lose, it's a bet the company thing and then the shareholders are going to go after the board for allowing it to happen. It's a nightmare. No one's going to go. No one's going to do that. We only had one trial in all my cases. And so, how many cases have you gone through? Um, it's been about thirty separate cases. Many wow. of them are with the same defendants. Like, for example, we sued Quest and LabCorp in about eight states. So that counts for two separate. That's sixteen cases right there. Because you have to go state by state according to the healthcare model that we currently have. If you're going after Medicaid, you have to go state by state. Yeah. However, we had such poor experiences in other states other than California that we'll never file a state case again. Um, we don't want to have to deal with the vagaries of the judges, the state judges, as well as the lack of respect of the state's attorney uh, general's offices. So we're going to file federal cases and name the states as additional plaintiffs. Uh, I understand. So those were some of the disappointments where you were like, uh, things happened behind your back, you had no control over them, having to go state by state on several of these cases. So let's kind of wrap things up with some of the big wins that you've had since 2011. Sure. Um, the next biggest win is a company called Health Diagnostic Labs. These guys... Two enterprising salesmen came up with this great idea. We're going to offer this huge panel of cardiovascular tests. It was just before Boston Heart Company. We're going to pay doctors a lot of money. Some doctors got a half a million dollars a year to order tests. They didn't do anything for that money. Um, 
and we're never going to build a patient. So, you know, and they went from nothing to 400 million in four years. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So we had a cardiovascular program too, which is why we filed. And after uh, four years, uh, the companies entered into, entered into settlements with DOJ and promptly declared bankruptcy after the settlement. So DOJ got nothing. <laughs> but but uh, they didn't settle with uh, three of the individuals, and they took those individuals to trial. And it was fascinating to sit through a, a two-week trial. The government had 17 lawyers there, as many as they had in the Enron case. And they won a $113 million judgment. But of course, all individuals pleaded bankruptcy. <laughs> At that point, it's crazy. It's crazy. It, it, it is better. I often say, and this is no offense to my fiction writers that are listening, I love you guys. You keep writing your fiction novels, please, because for me, that's brain candy. But when they talk about truth is stranger than fiction or reality is stranger than fiction, this is one of those things where you're like, honest, I can't make this stuff up. That's what I tell people when I'm writing my nonfiction. It's like, literally, I could never make up storylines like this uh, in a million years. So let's talk a little bit about you actually writing the book. When did you decide enough's enough with all these cases and everything? I need to write this down. Can you kind of talk to us about that process? I retired. Uh... I sold my last company in 2016. And it was then I began to think about writing a book. And so I started, and I ended up having to write it three times. First time I wrote it, I took about a year. I sent it out for review, and the reviews came back. This is an excellent investigative journalism story, but it's not a thriller. And I wanted to write a thriller. Okay. So, and hired a ghostwriter, and together we re re rewrote it, excuse me, rewrote it, and turned it into a thriller. Uh, and then I sent it to my lawyer for his review, and he said, Chris, if you publish this book the way it is, the Department of Justice is going to drop every one of our cases. You can't say these things about individuals within the DOJ or DOJ itself. So I had to rewrite it for a third time. <laughs> Left in the facts and let the uh, let the reader draw their own conclusions about the Department of Justice. Right. I did notice a lot of DOJ this, DOJ that, and you were not naming names at that point, you know. And I did notice that change, but at the same time, it did not detract from the quality of the message or the quality of the writing. So I just wanted to say thank you for writing your story because there are so many people like myself who absolutely love a good mystery. And even more so when you have a real life adventure like this, that is actuality, you have good, you have bad, you have wins, you have losses, but in, in the end, we are making progress. Things are coming to light because of people like you. And so first of all, I just want to say thank you for going toe-to-toe -to -toe with things that I was an analytical biochemist in the pharmaceutical industry. I worked for Glaxo Pharmaceuticals. I worked for Merck Sharp and Dome. And I was watching these huge organizations mitigating risk by becoming larger and larger through 
you know, a synthesis where they just started buying each other out. So what was a competitor? They cut the risk by buying each other. And I saw these huge mega corporations happening. And at the same time, I was just a, a little chemist trying to make the world a better place, one, one better pill at a time, right? But I also knew how much money was involved in the healthcare system. And it's quite the little juggernaut. So to see a little David and Goliath story like this, you're always rooting for the underdog <laughs> on stories like this. So thank you for writing it. So you had to write it three times. And each time it was because you had to protect the innocent or protect yourself yet again. But you have the chapters on how to be a whistleblower. So I really would like you to kind of talk about what led you to write that aspect of it, because it's almost like at the end where you like patch it up on the end. Sure. Um, I want people to know, if they're thinking about this, what they're going to go through. It isn't easy. Your life will never be the same. But there are things you can do to protect yourself. The first one, get another job. <laughs> because you can't be blackballed if you have another job. Uh, the second one is go seek. There's this uh, cottage industry now, litigation funders. They will pay you anywhere from $1 to $5 million as a non-recourse, basically, investment. In exchange, they'll take a percentage of anything that you may win. So if you don't win, you keep the money. This gives you a financial cushion when the attack starts. Right. And secondly, if the uh, litigation funder doesn't think your case has enough merit, you probably shouldn't go forward. It's going to be too hard of a road hoe. So those are three quality pieces of advice. And then you also talk about some of the attorneys that helped you. So there's always that road that you can walk down. And there are people now in place. You were just telling me before we got on to record the show how you were on a Zoom call where you were talking to a bunch of other whistleblowers. So now there are communities set up to help give you guidance so that you aren't walking in blind like a lot of you folks had to. Yes, yes. And they all wish that they had a place to go during the process. And so, I mean, I often say to any potential whistleblower or current whistleblower, you can call me and I'll give you the best guidance I can. You can't tell me if you, after you file who the company is, but we can talk about the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and also taxpayers against fraud is an excellent uh, source for any uh, current or future whistleblowers. So uh, to kind of wrap up today's interview, tell us if you don't mind, say I'm somebody that's contemplating this or I've already been through the process. Maybe I'm one of the whistleblowers that, that lost. Uh, are there ways or avenues that they can write their story without necessarily um, naming names because you have a lot of gag suits and gag orders that happen with situations like that. Do you have any recommend recommendations on the healing process that happens when you write your story, how you can almost put it to bed at that point? It, it was tremendously rewarding for me to write the book. It was like unloading so many frustrations. And at the same, at the same time, sharing information is really going to help people. And I'm a big reader. I love thrillers. You know, I hope people view this as a thriller. Most of the people <laughs> I've talked to so far have just loved it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I love mysteries. I love thrillers. And so the fact that I was actually being able to interview the main character of this thriller was very exciting for me as I was running through it. And then, of course, I used to do a lot of work with AIDS uh, back in the 90s. So I was one of those people that was involved in laboratories that were testing samples and stuff like that. So anyhow, so yeah, you were playing into my backyard, so to speak. <laughs> well, Chris, is there any options or, or is there any glimmer of hope in the future for you writing yet another, not necessarily a thriller, but writing yet another book after Blood Money? Yes, I actually started one about a very wealthy physician in Florida just and he's actually withholding COVID treatments that work because he's trying to get control of his company. So he's trying to drive the price down to public company. And then once he gets 50% control, he's continuing to buy. Then he's going to release this life-saving medicine. But I, as I was doing my research, it quickly became apparent Anybody that writes a negative press article about him is going to be sued and spend a lot of money. <laughs> My better judgment said, Chris, you don't need to go down that road. <laughs> but it was a great story. So, so right? So that's one of those that you become a fiction author and you take the pieces of uh, reality and start talking to your ghostwriters again about, okay, how do we keep ourselves out of trouble? And we'll make this a fiction piece. <laughs> well, we were going to, no, we were going to do a, you know. A, Nonfiction, yeah. A, you know, a true story about a very prominent person. Yeah. Okay. No, I understand. I understand that. Well, I hope, uh, since that one didn't pan out, I hope you're open and available and receptive to writing yet another book on this, because this is the area that our country needs a spotlight put on. Uh, our country needs, as we move forward with questions regarding health care and that, that we uh, keep, keep the spotlight on the shadows. You know, it, they can't run and hide if there's a spotlight shining on them. So thank you for being one of those beacons of hope for us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I enjoyed our conversation. So this is Janine Bullen with the Writer's Hour Creative Conversations. And we were talking to Chris Rydell about his latest book, Blood Money. If you have any interest in thrillers, this is a real-life situation. And at the back of it and in other sections of it, actually how to be your own whistleblower if you feel that you're in a situation that deserves that kind of attention. So thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you for listening to the Writer's Hour. To hear more about the creative conversations that Janine Bolin is sharing with her listeners, please visit janinebolin.com forward slash guest. Guest.